the income gap among surgeons overall was about 18%. And the income gap among internists overall was actually just a touch higher. Overall was about 20%. Welcome back to That Vet Life, a podcast for veterinary mentors and mentees. My name is Dr. Mariah McCauley, and this week I am talking with Dr. Sam Morello. Sam is an incredible veterinarian and mentor who started out as a large animal surgeon in academia and more recently made the pivot to an adjunct position with the Cornell Center for Veterinary Business and Entrepreneurship. Through her roles, she was approached by many veterinary students looking for guidance on which path they should take in veterinary medicine. Looking for answers to better inform these students, Sam went on to publish a number of articles on professional sustainability and gender in the veterinary workforce, including the income gap, how women and men may segregate down different career paths within the profession, as well as the financial strain of low pay for interns and residents, and the effects that can have on things like well-being and diversity. In today's episode, we focus on the income gap we are currently faced with and what it means in a profession that is becoming increasingly female. All right, I am so excited to share this episode with you, so let's jump right in. All right, well, Sam, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mariah, for having me. This is going to be pretty exciting. Um, We were introduced literally via email not too long ago by one of our friends here at the Veterinary Leadership Conference. And Sam, you have had quite a journey in your career so far getting to where you are now. So take us back in time from when you graduated vet school. Like, What was your trajectory? What were you going to do? And how the heck did you end up here? Okay. Yeah, we're going a little bit farther back in time maybe than uh, you might be guessing at the (laughs) moment. But I graduated vet school. Uh, I graduated Cornell Vet in 2006. And at that point was really intent on pursuing what had been my goal for arguably, I don't know, 20 years before that. So I left Cornell and went to Central Kentucky to do a surgical internship at Haggard. At the time, it was still called Haggard Davidson McGee. Today, it is known as Haggard Equine Medical Institute. So I did a very intense year-long internship at Haggard. For people who don't know it, Central Kentucky, the thoroughbred industry, and at the time, the thoroughbred industry was really at its peak. So a really wonderful but very, very difficult year. But I loved it. And then was uh, lucky enough to match into a surgical residency immediately out of internship and went up to New Bolton Center at the University of Pennsylvania and did a large animal surgery residency. So mostly horses, but got to do a lot on cows and goats and, you know, a couple other camelids and a few pigs here and there as well. And I had really actually wanted to do a residency across all large animal species because I hadn't ever, I think, been close to a cow right up until the point that I went to college or vet school, but recognized that they were just sort of a spectacular species to get to learn on and get to do surgery on and really enjoyed that, you know, little corner of my residency and was lucky because coming out of my residency in 2010, when the recession was really upon us and was really sort of wreaking havoc on some of the equine um, and large animal industry, 
landed a job at the University of Wisconsin. I really wanted to be in academia, and certainly, you know, stereotypes are sometimes there for a reason. Wisconsin, mm-hmm. uh, you weren't going to get there if you didn't know something about cows. So went to University of Wisconsin to be a large animal surgeon and was there for 11 years. Loved my time there. Didn't think I would, you know, I grew up in New York and didn't think I would spend more than a year or two in the Midwest. But 11 years later, yeah, I was still there and had a wonderful time clinically, as a teacher, and as a researcher. And it was actually that last part, really the last two parts actually, that created space for me to sort of, I don't know, redefine parts of my career, I guess. Parts of the way I interacted with veterinary medicine and parts of the way I think I, maybe I define myself just as a professional in general. So a few years into my time at UW, you know, I I mentored a lot of students, both formally and informally. And I find myself sitting in my office with students coming in, asking questions about becoming a surgeon, becoming an equine practitioner, even becoming other things. And more so than when I had been a student, I was answering questions about not just the professional aspects of their lives, but the personal aspects of their lives and how those things were going to meld or not meld and how they were going to be able to balance one with the other, really based off of what I knew about how, for example, a surgeon was going to be able to, you know, start a family or something Mm -hmm. like that. And I had some answers based on heuristics. In other words, what I saw out in the world within the peer group of large animal surgeons I knew or what I saw of colleagues in other spaces. But what I didn't have was really good evidence. And I felt a a responsibility to, if I was going to help these students make really, you know, impactful choices, choices that were going to sort of define the rest of their careers and lives in some way, I needed some better information to help them make those choices. And so it sort of inspired me to go after that information through research. And I started doing sort of these large-scale survey studies, first in my college, the American College of Veterinary Surgeons, and then later in the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine, which is internists, but also cardiologists and oncologists and neurologists, to sort of get at some of that data, you know, how do people live their professional lives, and then just some summary statistics on their personal lives as well to try to understand, you know, what's the norm, how are people balancing these things, Mm -hmm. what might somebody expect if they become some sort of specialist. And what we found was, I don't want to say it was earth shattering because you could probably have made some of those predictions, Mm -hmm. but to actually have that evidence and be able to show it and talk about it and make correlations. Made a big splash. It made, yeah, yeah, it really, it really did. And actually one thing that has always stood out to me so much about what came after, you know, what came after those publications and out of some of the talks I gave you know, sure, it it had a huge impact on the specialists and managers and leaders and everything. But sometimes when I would go to veterinary schools to give talks, it was the students who were the most interested and the most sort of passionate about asking questions and coming up to me after. And I think because it, it meant so much to them and their ability to 
make choices and make informed choices. And also to consider whether it was an opportunity to reform areas of the profession. And that's so much what all of this is about, right? Like, how can we do better? Exactly. Um, Are we doing it well enough now? Or, you know, what are the things that are going to need to change Mm -hmm. going forward? as we sort of change and as our profession changes. Oh my gosh. And I I really want to dive into that. But before we do, I'm going to get like, everyone's like sitting on the edge of their seat being like, what was the research you did? What was the earth shattering bit? And I'm going to be like, you're going to have to wait to hear that towards the end of the episode. I want to go back in time a little bit. So for the vet students and new grads who are listening, who like, they probably are following the similar route. They're like, I want to be an equine vet. I want to be an equine surgeon. I'm going to go to Root and Riddle. I'm going to go to Haggers. I'm going to go to all these big names and do my internships there because that's what you do. But for you, you went down that road and then you realized just how much you love the teaching aspect. You had all these students that were coming to you and asking these big questions, quite honestly, and you were seeing you honestly, you were kind of watching from bird's eye view the change of the veterinary profession. Because right. like when you graduated, like what percentage of your class was guys? Yeah, I think we had, gosh, there were about 86 people in my graduating class. And we had, I don't know, we had 15 or 20 men in my class. I can probably quote the AVMC <laughs> statistics better than I can quote my own class. But yeah, in the early 2000s, we probably still had 20 to 25 percent men across the country yeah. and now it's 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 under 20 it's for sure Insane how that's happened and so you got to watch this from literally that bird's eye view of these students coming to you and asking you how do I become a surgeon like should I become a surgeon like what are the impacts of my outside life not just clinically and you said well I can give you some advice based on what I saw or what I saw my classmates do, but you took it an extra level and you said, I want to get you data points on this. Right. And so you went down this research path, which I feel like a lot of students forget that you can do that, that you can start out in clinical practice and then you can pivot based on where your interests are going or where honestly life is taking you. And that is absolutely fine. I mean, for you, it took you from, what was it, New York to Kentucky to Wisconsin (laughs) and then Boston or something? Like you've gone all over the place, at least on the Midwest to Eastern Seaport. I think that's a great point. And I think that we have incredible training as veterinarians because the scientific method should not be underestimated. And that's really central to what we're taught. Whether or not we're researchers, we are taught a really objective approach to problem solving using evidence, using sort of a really objective approach to evaluating data to solve a problem, using available resources, observing what's around you and taking that input and then sort of analyzing it in a really sort of routine but also rigorous way. And using those skills and applying them to whatever other questions you have is a skill set we have and don't necessarily realize we have. And what you're describing is exactly what I did. And I have to say, when I started doing it, I wasn't I wasn't sure that I had that skill set really, because you're right, it didn't seem like a natural fit, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we can go in and we can diagnose a disease, I can put a bone back together, or I can take out a segment of intestine, but can I solve a piece of a social science problem? I mean, it, it does take some skill sets that I didn't necessarily have, but 
we're all also very good learners. And one of the things we learn both during vet school and after vet school is how to find the answers to things we don't inherently know because we didn't learn them in school or in an internship or in a residency or whatever other path we took. But we learn how to learn really well as well. I mean, that's the best skill probably that we get. Absolutely. And in a way, it's kind of like being a professional imposter, which everyone talks about imposter syndrome and just feeling like you're not qualified to do that. And to a degree, did you kind of, when you were going down this route of, I'm leaving clinical practice and doing more research, did you feel like you, it was like a fish out of water or were you like, no, this is exactly where I'm supposed to go? I still feel that way, every, you know, every day. I don't even think I got to this part of my story, <laughs> but yeah, I left my academic job almost a year and a half ago and I've been doing a variety of different things, consulting work. Um, I'm an adjunct faculty at the Cornell Center for Veterinary Business and Entrepreneurship. I don't actually have any formal background in business and entrepreneurship, but it's so central to the work I've done about pay equity and Mm -hmm. women in veterinary medicine. And I'm heading into now a career in consulting. And so, yes, every day I feel like I am sort of not equipped to be able to do what I'm trying to do. But I try to anchor on exactly what I was talking about. You know, I'm good at learning. I'm good at solving problems. So that's what I'm going to focus on. And the other thing I really try to focus on is the fact that that's the part that's most fun, right? Like after a while, when you're really good at doing something or you know all the answers, some of the fun, I don't want to say it goes away, but it's not as as fun anymore. It's not as fun anymore, right? (laughs) Like when you've done your, you know, your hundredth, whatever, spay or, or colic surgery or splint bone removal or something, right? It's so routine, you're not challenged in the same way. So yeah. there's something, I think I've, I've given this advice to a few people before. If it's something that intimidates you or that's a little bit scary to do, that's the thing that you should be doing because it's going to be the most rewarding in the end. So I try to turn around the concept of some of the stereotypes or some of the yeah, some of the stereotypes we buy into, like the concept of a of imposter syndrome, like, can we put a positive spin on it, right? Yeah. Instead of saying imposter syndrome is bad, like maybe imposter syndrome is the thing that we should be looking at and saying, well, if I'm feeling like an imposter, maybe I turn that around and say, well, that's a good goal for me to reach for then. Like if it's making me feel a little bit intimidated, well, maybe that's a good new challenge for me to try to take on. It means you're just stepping outside of that comfort zone into the challenge zone, but not quite into the fight or flight zone. Right. So That's a great way of putting yeah. it. I love that. <laughs> so like those three little areas that you have, you have your like comfort zone where everything is fine and dandy, nothing is scary. And then you take one step out of that and you're like, ooh, slightly outside the comfort zone, the challenge zone. But if you go any further, <laughs> then you take another step out of that. And then you get into that fight or flight panic zone, which maybe you shouldn't be there. You should take a step back. But yeah, way to look at it. Yeah, that's a really wonderful summary of it. And I mean, I think you're giving a talk on this tomorrow, right? We're, yep. we're here at VLC <laughs> and um, Mariah is giving a talk on generational change tomorrow. And that's one of the things I think a lot of us really understand. We're not even the same generation, but the concept of growth mindset right, and development more and more in the younger generation of veterinarians, really in everybody in professional spaces that we're seeing looking for more opportunities for growth and development. And I think that's part of that whole concept as well, right? Yes. That that's those challenges, those opportunities to learn and grow. And in some ways, that's really what it was for me, right? Finding these new ways to apply skill sets, these new ways to develop skill sets, 
it was just new ways to grow the same career or a career in a different direction, a new career around ideas, concepts, problems that were grown out of veterinary medicine, you know, around this concept of development and learning. Absolutely. Now, before we get on with the episode, a quick word from today's show sponsor. Introducing the Vet Career Concierge Service. It's an easy way to find your dream job and it's a brilliantly simple concept. Instead of wasting time searching through thousands of practice jobs that might be a good fit but frequently aren't, let the Vet Career Concierge do the hard work. All you have to do is register, tell us all about your skills and what you're looking for from your next practice, then your Career Concierge goes to work filtering, matching and approaching only practices who are a good fit. If you like the sound of a practice you want to meet, your concierge will coach you through the interview process, help with negotiations and work to ensure you have a smooth transition into practice when you accept a role. They'll even stay in touch with scheduled career check-ins to make sure you're happy. The service is open to vets and vet nurses with at least one year in practice and legally able to work in the US, Canada, UK, EU or Australia. To register, visit vetxinternational.com forward slash jobs and all registrants will be entered into a prize draw where you could win an Apple Watch, Magnum of Champagne or one of several Amazon gift cards. Registration and membership is free for vets and nurses, so head to vetxinternational.com forward slash jobs to sign up today. Now back to the show. So let's take that and let's go back into that bit of research that we left everybody else wondering (laughs) about and look at like, what was it that you were truly evaluating and what were you trying to find out? So a lot of the main concept centered around trying to understand, you know, what it means to have a profession that is becoming so predominantly female. It was actually all the way back in the 80s that veterinary school classes became greater than 50% female. And I think people somehow think it happened a lot later than that, but Mm -hmm. it happened that long ago. And it wasn't until 2009 that the actual profession became, so working veterinary professionals became greater than 50% female. And since then, it's sort of rapidly increased. Today, it's estimated at probably around 65 or more percent female. And it's going to continue to increase, right? So what does that mean? Are there things that we need to rethink, change, address about the way veterinary medicine works to sort of either support our workforce differently, adapt to our workforce differently? You know, we're in the midst of a workforce crisis that doesn't necessarily have to do with the fact that we're increasingly female, but recruitment, retention, combating burnout. You can't really think of all those things without thinking about who we are. We're more female and we're younger. And so, you know, back when I was starting that research and I was trying to counsel young veterinarians, the fact that they were younger women who were trying to plan their lives and also really their families in a lot of ways had to take into account the fact that they were women and on a large scale, and it's not true for every individual, but on a large scale, needs and preferences are honestly just different than they're going to be for, say, a larger group of men. Mm -hmm. And so those investigations really tried to evaluate, you know, what is the average life of, in those cases, specialist veterinarians, but what is the average life of a specialist female veterinarian, and then also what is sort of just the average life of a woman who is practicing that way. I ask questions like, are you married? 
do you have children? When did you have your first child? We asked questions around income to try to evaluate for pay inequities, advancement gaps. We looked at things like hours worked and on call to try to look at some of those stressors. Yeah. So a really sort of broad and as sweeping as we could anyway view of work and life and how those things intersected to try and you know, think about those questions so they could be helpful for both managers and leaders, but also current and future practitioners. Absolutely. Like we said in the very beginning, the face of the profession is changing in such a dramatic way that the data that you had, even if you had the same research like 10 years ago, it's not going to be as applicable as to what's happening here and now. So when you did all this research, you got, honestly, was this the one where you had like a 50% response rate or is that the other research I'm thinking of? No, yeah. You know, we surveyed almost the entire College of Veterinary Surgeons and had over a 50% response okay, rate. was this one. Yeah. That's yeah, impressive. Yeah, it was. I mean, I think it just speaks to the fact that when we started to ask those questions, people cared, right? And it was meaningful and people wanted to talk about those mm-hmm. topics and issues because nobody really had asked questions like that. And so it just highlighted a need to walk this path of, you know, addressing this type of work in our profession. And did you have outcomes that dramatically surprised you guys? Or were you looking at the results kind of going, yep, we expected that? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it was definitely confirmatory to things that we expected. Some things were a little, I guess, a little bit more surprising than I would have predicted. You know, for example, when we looked at some of the income gap was a little bit larger than I would have predicted. And we surveyed both colleges, the College of Veterinary Surgeons and the College of Veterinary Internal Medicine. And surgeons at the time were still mostly men. About 60% of surgeons were men back then. And that's changing now too. But also at the time, about 60% of internists were women. And so it was interesting to compare that because that's sort of the same foil as the profession, right? We used to be mostly men and we're becoming mostly women. And then to compare those two groups is to sort of consider, well, how does our profession change? And the interesting thing was that the income gap among surgeons overall was about 18%. um, And the income gap among internists overall was actually just a touch higher. Overall was about 20%. Okay. And comparatively was smaller among the academic specialists and quite a bit larger among the private practitioners where their salary is based on mostly on production. And so those are all really, I think, critical things to think about as we continue to shift towards a more female profession, as we think about revenues, as we have more corporate practices, more private equity, where the bottom line becomes a little bit more important. You know, what are the reasons for those pay gaps, particularly when they're based on revenue generation and production? You know, some of it, I think, still can be accounted for by bias, but I don't think it's the majority of those gaps. In private practice, it was about 25 to 29% between the two colleges. So starting to think about, you know, are there differences in how women and men work? You know, the hours worked. I don't think women are are less efficient or not working as hard. I'm sure that's not true, <laughs> yeah, actually. Right? But the nuances of the way care is delivered, and we can drill down on that. I, I have a lot of thoughts about it. But I think those things are important to understand because 
I think understanding those differences has a lot to do with the way veterinary medicine needs to be sort of reconsidered going forward as we have a more female-dominated profession so that we can support the women who are working in our practices first and foremost, and then also so that we can support our practices, whether or not they're privately owned or corporate owned. We still have a, a massive profession to support no matter what. And I think that 10,000 foot perspective is important. Absolutely. And, and just like in hearing what you're saying, the one of the bigger points that I have as a takeaway for these vet students who are listening is when you talk about like the stereotypes and the biases that we have, it's that like people will look at the, the pay gap and they'll be like, oh, it's because of the stereotypes. It's because of what they think about it. But as what I'm hearing from you and from the research that you're finding is that it's not necessarily these biases that are causing these gaps. There are other subtle nuances, which unfortunately we don't have enough time to go into all of them here today. But those are the things that are really making the difference. And it's not necessarily about saying, oh, men and women, they're vastly different um, right. and trying to make one look like the other, but saying, all right, how are they different? How do they um, provide care? How do they work these hours? What are those little strengths that right now we're just kind of not necessarily oblivious to, but just not paying enough attention to? And how do we draw those strengths out so that we then can support them, support our profession and see and kind of predict in a way where it's going to go in the next 10, 20 years. Because that's what we want. We want a strong profession. We want a supportive profession. And it takes almost like taking that little magnifying glass and putting it on little areas. At the time, it doesn't feel like it's doing a whole lot. But when you put all those pieces together, suddenly you have a much more detailed map about where you're going. Support and reward. But yes. yes. That's exactly right. I'll give one really simple example because I think it rounds out this yeah. part of the conversation really well. It's not in veterinary medicine because unfortunately we don't have that data, but in human medicine where they can do these, you know, massive evaluations because they have, you know, millions of data points from things like Medicare and all the social systems that they have. They've found that women spend about 8 to 10% longer in exam rooms than men. Oh communicating with their patients mm -hmm. and that also they have a slightly, it's a very small, like 0.1% lower mortality rate among surgeons actually, but that translates into many lives over millions of patients, which may be because of things like more communication, right? In the, mm -hmm. in the exam room or in discharges or whatever. So it's the way that they're, like you said, the way that they're interacting with their patients, which may be measurable if you take the time, if you like we're going yeah. back, circling back to what we were talking about before, right? Like you apply the scientific method, you yes. use your analytical skills to actually ask those questions and come up with it. So there are ways of figuring that out. It's not easy to do. It's not <laughs> in any way a simple question to ask, but it's solvable. And it also could translate into, you know, the way that we charge, the way that we pay it could support a different workforce in a different way if we could understand the nuances of the choices that practitioners make in different, whether it's gender or age or another identity, right? It's worth it to consider that as we're changing as a profession. Absolutely. And like there are strengths in these differences. And by identifying them, we can, again, better support each other, better understand each other and together have a stronger profession. 
That was such an awesome example that you used to round this out. Oh my gosh. (laughs) But Sam, I want to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I've learned a ton. I think this has been really supportive for the vet students and the new grads who are listening. But I want to give you a couple minutes here at the end, just because I know people will have questions. They want to know more about that other research paper that we alluded to. So where can they find out more information about you? Well, thank you so much, Maria, for having me. This has been a wonderful conversation. You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, I have a couple links to some of my, I guess, more favorite research papers there that you can find. Certainly PubMed as well. You can also find me on the um, website for the Center for Veterinary Business and Entrepreneurship. And you can email me at slm42 at cornell.edu if you want to talk about any of my other research. I have an article that should be coming out soon. I don't know what's going to come out first, the podcast or the article. That's a follow-up study to one I did last year on salaries for veterinary interns and residents. And it's going to talk about some of the really encouraging increases that we've been seeing to those salaries that are, you know, another way that we are investing in people in a way that is supportive to our workforces, that values people in a really positive way, that supports women, diversity, well-being, just another sort of... um, plug for this entire concept of how we can think about people in a changing workforce. Oh my goodness. And just from the little bit that we talked about off microphone about that research paper, it's incredibly exciting. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. But for all of those ways to contact Sam, uh, they'll be in the show notes for you guys. But otherwise, like go and reach out to her. She's such a fun, encouraging, inspiring human. But once again, Sam, thank you so much. Um, And for everybody listening, you can always find more episodes wherever any major podcasting platform is found. Or you can go to the VEDEX International website and you can join the community there where there are a ton of people that want to mentor you. They want to provide their feedback, so go and ask a question there. But otherwise, until next week, y'all, see ya. And that's a wrap on today's episode of That Vet Life Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now, before you go, I have a quick request. Now, podcasts and communities, they grow the best and they grow the biggest when the members spread the word. So if you know someone who you think needs to hear this episode, or if you found value in this episode and want to share it, go ahead and share this with your friends. And also don't forget to head over to vedexinternational.com and enroll in the VEDEX community for free to get some free swag and many, many other amazing benefits. Also leaving a review of the show on iTunes would be greatly appreciated because again, it just helps get the word out. But until next time, y'all, I hope you enjoyed this episode of That Vet Life.